0: The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our New Testament passage comes from the book of Mark, chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of unleavened Bread, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. Lord, we thank you for revealing to us your heart, your mission the glorious and beautiful things that you are doing and may we worship and glory in that for you are worthy of our worship and of all our glory we pray this in jesus name amen when my eldest son was about two years old he he does not remember this but um, my family we were out in california uh, just outside of la for a wedding and, you know, you're, you're never really sure how things are going to go when you're bringing a little child to a wedding and a wedding rehearsal and a reception and, and all of that. It's, it can be touch and go, but it was an experience. And, and here we were in this place outside of L.A., and, and it was nice. I mean, really nice. And, and we were asked the question, you know, what, what does your son like to eat? Said, well, is there a children's menu? And there was. And we were looking at the children's menu, and we saw on the children's menu that one of the options was a pot pie. And we thought, perfect. You know, kids and eating, it's always, uh, but, but in this moment in time, he loved pot pies. Like, we would have these meals at home and, you know, what would you like? A pot pie, in the little squeaky two-year-old voice. A great pot pie. And so we said, we'll take the pot pie. He'll eat that, surely. So, there we are, and we sit down to the meal and the pot pie comes out. And my wife happened to have a moment where she was able to glance at the menu and see the prices associated with the various foods at this particular establishment. And we were immediately thankful that this was not on our tab. You know that pot pie that my two-year-old ate? $30. Yes, my two-year-old son got to experience a $30 pot pie. Little does he know his life has already peaked. I'm not going to tell him. And as parents of a two-year-old eating a $30 pot pie, you know, the thought that goes through our mind, probably the thought that would go through your mind is, what a waste. He's two. He could not possibly appreciate a $30 child's pot pie. In the passage that we read today, there is a woman who breaks a flask, an alabaster flask of ointment. And the passage tells us that it was worth over 300 denarii. Denarii was a day's wage, and so you can think of this as one year's salary. I do not know what you make in a year, but imagine a jar valued at your annual salary, breaking it, and in one moment, using all of it upon Jesus. Wow. That that is quite a statement. That is quite an act. And there were those there in the room bothered by it. Who, what type of personality, what type of character, what Type of person is generally bothered the most by extravagant acts like this. Pragmatists. Right? I can say that uh, because usually that is exactly what I am. Not only am I the chaplain at the school, but I am also an administrator and Well, pragmatism comes naturally to me. Pragmatism is a condition that is deeply embedded in the culture of the United States of America. In fact, pragmatic philosophy originated in the good old U.S. of A. in the latter quarter of the 19th century. You know, those of us who desire to maximize our resources, to efficiently allocate what we have available to us, to to try and get the most bang for our buck. What a very American thing. When God created the world, when He created the universe and everything in it, He did not sit back and say, this is very efficient. No. The Lord looked at what He had done, and He said, this is very efficient. Good. This is very good. Pragmatism has its place. But as followers of the Creator God, what we need to tune our hearts to is not efficiency, but rather Him. We need to tune our hearts and recognize the Lord God for whom he is. We need to acknowledge and appreciate what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. And as we look to this passage, it can give us a little bit of a hint about how we might be able to do that. The first thing that I would like us to notice in this passage is that, for you recovering pragmatists out there, we need to tune our heart to the Lord, that we might have a heart centered on God. Uh, this passage has a literary feature in it. It is uh, the, the the name of this literary feature is an inclusio. So I, I also have the opportunity to teach Bible, and uh, we talk about what this literary device is—an inclusio. Um, basically, an inclusio is this: it is when A passage starts with one thing, has something in the middle, and ends with the same thing that it began with. And so to help my students understand it, I refer to it as the Oreo. You have the cookie on both sides with the cream in the middle. Commentators talking about this passage, uh, they have their own phrase that they use for it. They call it a Markinian sandwich. That mark is sandwiching An idea between two of the same idea. Here is that inclusio. The passage begins in verses 1 and 2 with the chief priests and the scribes scheming about how to kill Jesus. They want to do it secretly. They want to do it in a way that will not upset the crowds. They want to bring an end to Jesus. Then at the end of the passage in verses 10 through 11, we see Judas Seeking an opportunity to bring an end to Jesus, to betray him, to turn him over to the chief priests and the scribes. And when the chief priests and the scribes hear that Judas wants to betray him, they are glad. They they think to themselves, I love it when a plan comes together. He approaches them and tells them his intent and they say, we will Pay you to make this happen on either ends of this passage you have this rebellion this betrayal this evil thing and then in the middle in the center the cream filling there's this story of this woman this story of what jesus calls a beautiful act a beautiful thing, a worshipful act, an act of wild abandon, an act that is centered on Christ. This woman comes and she anoints Jesus. It tells us that they are in the house of Simon the leper. It is becoming closer and closer to the cross. We are approaching the Passover meal that Jesus is going to be having with his disciples and they are here at this meal and this woman comes and she covers Jesus in this costly ointment. I call this act an act of wild abandon. And I have a reason for that. The first thing is well, the value of the nard. It's this aromatic ointment and And it's worth over 300 denarii, an entire year's salary. Now, in those days, uh, it, it would not have been expected for a woman to possess something of such great value. And so it probably, in all likelihood, was not just hers. It probably belonged to the family as a whole. You know, a jar... A flask with something of this much value, this would have been prized. Is there anything that you keep on the shelf in your home that is worth 40, 50, 70,000 dollars? It's a lot. This, this alabaster flask likely was either a family heirloom that would get passed from generation to generation a generation. Or perhaps it was a sort of nest egg, something that they would rely on for retirement, something that they could look to and and turn to if all of a sudden the going gets tough, maybe some sort of break in case of emergency. They could sell it and the family would be taken care of. And here this woman, this unnamed woman, does, does this act, This surprising and amazing thing to which the financial and relational impact of it makes everybody sort of raise their eyebrows. What is going on here? And she doesn't just, you know, kind of do it. She knows what it says she does. It says that she breaks it. There's no turning back. She doesn't pop the cork. She doesn't unscrew the lid. She doesn't, you know, take a little bit out of it. No, she takes it. she, She breaks it. It's over. And it's all over, Jesus. The inclusio in this passage encourages us to compare and contrast what is happening with the chief priests and the scribes and Judas and this woman? Both of these acts that we see represented here are calculated. The the chief priests and the scribes, they, they talk about in verses one and two how can we how can we arrest Jesus but do it stealthily? How can we how can we kill him, but not during the feast, because we don't want to cause an uproar of the people. Judas is trying to figure out how he can betray Jesus. Who can I align myself with? Who can I be allied with and profit from? It's calculated. This woman it, it doesn't it doesn't explicitly tell us the calculation of it, but for anyone who has ever done something extravagant that is going to affect not only you but your family and all those around you, you think about it. Right? Nobody just accidentally grabs a jar valued at tens of thousands of dollars and in a moment just, I'm just, no, they, as you, I'm i am thinking about this and this, is this the right thing? Should I do this? Should I not do this? I feel compelled and drawn To do this act. It tells us that they were sitting there. They were reclining at table. She intentionally went. Grabbed it. Went to Jesus. Interrupted what was happening. Broke it. It was calculated. Both of these events, both of these things are very dramatic aren't they? I mean, what are the chief priests and the scribes talking about? They're talking about murder. They're not saying, hey, we want to do away with Jesus. Let's, you know, kind of get him. Let's, let's make him go. No. They are plotting the murder of a man. The murder of a man that people generally like. They recognize this because they are concerned about what the crowd may or may not do in response. And this woman's act is also most definitely dramatic. I mean, everybody responds. You get the double eyebrow raise. What is she doing? And both of these are a response to Jesus. Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes, Judas, they are responding to Jesus, to what he has been doing, to his ministry, to his influence in the world. They don't like it. And they are responding to Jesus Christ by planning how to take him out. This woman is also responding to Jesus in a completely different way. Here was a man that she wanted to honor, to worship, to praise to bestow this thing of great value upon him as we compare and contrast we see that one is called out by Jesus as beautiful and the other we know is completely and utterly evil how how can we attune our hearts to the things of god we need to focus our hearts on the right thing. We need to focus our heart in the center of this story, in the worship of God. A heart for God rather than a heart for self. Many times, it's difficult to tell, okay, is this, is this pragmatic? Is this a good thing? Is this good pragmatism or is this selfish pragmatism? Where is our heart? It is good to be pragmatic for the glory of God. If, if we are exercising efficiency and using things well for God's, oh, that is so good if it is for God's glory. But often, if we are honest with ourselves, we're more like the scribes and the Pharisees and Judas, and, and we're just thinking of ourselves. We need to have hearts who are centered on God. Throughout the ages, um, people have built beautiful things for the Lord. Sometimes, people have built beautiful things for themselves. We need to focus on God. If you go to Europe, you can travel around, you can see the glorious churches that were built over time. And you know, the people that went about building those churches, there was a reality that they had to come to grips with. The work would not be finished in their generation. It took a long time to build some of those magnificent churches and great expense. Can you imagine pouring out your life, building something that you would never get to enjoy? Building something, spending your entire life building something so beautiful and glorious but not for you that future generations might be able to worship and experience the beauty of god that is a beautiful thing that they might know the glory and the magnificent magnificence of the lord god let us build a beautiful world for his glory let us do beautiful things For the worship of the Lord our God. The other way that we can attune our hearts to God and what He is doing to the true, the good, and the beautiful is by having hearts who trust, hearts who fully trust in God. You know, there's more contrast here than just the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and and the woman. There is also this controversy in the middle. The woman comes and and she she breaks the jar. She spreads the ointment in Jesus. And there are two very different reactions. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like this? And then there was Jesus. This is a beautiful thing. Two very different reactions. Those watching it said were indignant. This this word indignant is the same Greek word that is used when it talks about the response of the disciples to James and John, when James and John went to Jesus and they said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit at your left and right hand? Right. We would like to have these seats of... Recognition, power, authority? And the rest of the disciples heard what John and James were asking. They were indignant. They were angered. They were fresh. They were annoyed. Oh, how dare you ask that question? And as they watched this woman pour the ointment upon Jesus, it was the same response. They were angered. Mark doesn't say who was indignant about what this woman was doing. He only says some were indignant about or to her her act. In, in the book of John, when John tells this story, uh, he doesn't uh, leave it ambiguous like that. He actually tells us who one of the indignant individuals was, and it was Judas. But, but whereas John focuses on Judas, Mark tells us that there was more than one response in this way, and he doesn't tell us who it is. I think that that is so we can all identify with these people responding in this way. You know, part of what makes this act so difficult for pragmatists is the struggle with opportunity cost. What does opportunity cost? Opportunity costs. If you're going to do one thing, that means you can't do another. If you're going to spend the ointment on Jesus, use it all on Jesus, that means you can't use it somewhere else. What about the poor? They asked Jesus. What about the poor? Now, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, okay? Uh, because, let's be honest... Sometimes, what about the poor is just a convenient excuse to hiding our own selfishness, hiding our own agenda. But I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, and I'm going to assume that they really were concerned about the poor. What about the poor? You know, there are, there are many forms of this argument, the question, the struggle of opportunity cost, the struggle of how are we going to use the resources that God has given to us, um, why? why minister here in a country where you can find a Bible on almost every bookshelf when there are places in the world where people have not yet heard the gospel and they have to travel miles even to find a single gospel text? What about the lost? Why would you, why would you spend your resources? Why would you give money to an expensive campus ministry here in the United States, do you know how far those dollars would go in South America? What about those ministries? Why would you spend that kind of money on an arched stained glass window when you could use that money to build a food pantry and you could take care of the needy? How do we think through the opportunity cost when we have these resources? Now, uh, I'm not going to be talking today about calling and um, how to specifically address the genuine concern of what about the poor. Instead, what I, what I want us to turn our attention to, what I, I think this passage reminds us of, is the heart of... Of that matter, the heart of the question is this illusion, an illusion of finite resources, an illusion of control. Who is in the room with them? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. You know, just a little bit earlier in Mark chapter 6, Jesus had taken five loaves of bread and two fish and fed five 1000 people 5000 people 5 loaves 2 fish you know from our perspective our resources are very finite not in the eyes of the lord god has all of the resources They are all his. He owns them all. And he will use them for his glory and for his purposes. What about the poor? The Lord God will take care of the poor. If we trust that we have a God who has all the resources and will offer them to us, then we can take that opportunity cost struggle in our hearts and say it's okay our god is big and the second illusion control you know often uh, we have this desire to control the resources that we are able to see now now god has called us to be good stewards of the resources that he has given us. We are commanded to invest them well and to use them wisely. So don't hear what I'm not saying. But but sometimes it is easy to get so caught up with these blinders about what is in front of us and to try to control the situation that it prevents us from enjoying and worshiping God with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our mind and our soul. And so for the struggling pragmatist wrestling with opportunity cost, my encouragement is this. Trust. Trust that God is God. Know the truth. That he is the one in control of all the resources. And he, he is going to do it. And we recognize a God who is worthy of, of beautiful acts, when we recognize a God who has given everything for us, you know what it does? It changes us. Struggling pragmatists, may our hearts be transformed by God. Jesus tells the disciples, he tells them, you will always have the poor. You will always have the poor, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. She's prepared him for burial. Again, similar to those who were indignant about this act, Mark leaves ambiguous the identity of this woman. He doesn't name her. He just says, a woman. But John is not nearly as ambiguous. He tells us who it is, that it is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the man who Jesus raised from the dead. Before this day, before this gathering in this house, Mary's brother had died. Lazarus had died. They had placed him in a tomb And they were mourning, they were weeping over the death of their beloved brother. And Jesus comes and he shows up and Mary and her sister Martha explain to Jesus, oh, if you had only been here and through their grief and yet worship, they're so thankful that Jesus is here but so saddened that their brother is gone. And what does Jesus do? He goes to the tomb he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walks out of the tomb. Mary's life had been radically changed by Jesus. Mary's life had been radically transformed by Jesus. He had taken her brother who was dead and brought him back to life. And if that had happened to you, your heart would swell with gratitude. For Mary, the transforming love of Jesus had changed her. Had compelled her to worship him in a way that was so costly, that was so extravagant, and it was right. As I mentioned, I'm chaplain at Providence Academy. Just one day there was a parent who came and said, Chris, I so appreciate these messages that you give to our children. I got you a seventy thousand dollar watch. Here you go. Wear it proudly. Everybody, including myself, would be like, "Ooh, I'm not so sure about that." Jesus had brought her brother back from the dead, and that—that was only a shadow. That was only a preview. That was only a trailer of what was to come because Jesus says she is preparing me for burial. You see, they had not yet experienced it, but Jesus knew where he was going. He knew what was going to happen. Very soon, he was going to go to the cross. He was going to be killed upon a cross. Why? So that the sins of you and of me that they might no longer be upon our head, but upon His. That we might be forgiven. That at the cross of Christ, all of those evil and wicked things, all of the dark areas of our heart might be atoned for. That we might be freed to live For God, that we might be free to enjoy the beauty that he has given us. And that we might be free to do beautiful things that others might enjoy Him and know Him and love Him. And Jesus says to the disciples wherever the gospel is proclaimed, wherever the good news is proclaimed, wherever the message of the cross is proclaimed, this story will be remembered and it will be told. Why? Because in this story, we see just a glimpse of the worthiness of the cross, the worthiness of the gospel message, the worthiness of the good news that Jesus Christ has brought. And so it enables even the most pragmatic of person to put aside their calculations for a moment and I know them well and worship to enjoy the beautiful thing that Christ has done for us that has been shown and offered to us the forgiveness of sins and the redemption of all creation. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing so divine. It demands my soul, my life, and my all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die. There were those who believed that they could win And have victory through their evil intentions. And yet, you used it for your glory. It was your purpose to save us. That we might have life. And Lord, as we dwell on that. As our hearts are centered not on ourselves but on you. God, as we worship you for who you are, the God of the universe, and as we worship you for what you have done, saved our very souls. Lord, may you stir us to worship, to worship you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our soul, for you are worth all of it. Would you place that in our hearts,